Today's scripture reading is Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned, in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil, and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. Then she told the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. When his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious and had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. The word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, as we think on the phrase that's been repeated a couple of times in this verse, the Lord was with him. Father, I pray that you would indeed be with us, not just in our emotions, not just in the songs that we sing, not just in the ways that we serve, but God, you indeed would reveal yourself to us through your word so that we can get past our own predilections, we can get past uh, the ways that we're prone to think, the ways that we're prone to feel and go beyond that. Uh, God, I pray that you would indeed impress yourself upon us in such a way that we see you larger, that we shrink, you increase, that your spirit would really reign supreme and that we would have a bigger version, a bigger view of who you are and a more accurate view of who we are. We pray that now in Jesus' name, amen. So we're back uh, talking about Joseph. If you're new with us, we've been spending time going through this series in Genesis. And the beauty of going through scripture, uh, the, the beauty of allowing the scriptures to by and large dictate what you preach through is that you don't have the convenience of being able to skip around and skip the hard stuff. You don't have the, the option to say, hey, you know, that's, that's some hard controversial matter. I, I, I'd rather not, let me just talk about the easy stuff again. And so because we've been going all the way through Genesis, we're here uh, in Genesis 39, and the name of our series has been uh, Restore, Genesis Restored. So what is it, again, this question of why did God make us? What did he create us to do? How did sin mar that and pervert that image? And what is he doing to restore that back again? And so we're seeing a great example of the ways in which relationships have been broken, the ways that we see each other, the ways that we see ourselves have really broken down. And this story is no uh, exception. Before we get too deep in this story, 
And if you've been in church any period of time, you've probably heard this story or some version of this story. It's really important that we not jump to like our go-tos. When you hear a certain verse that you've heard over and over again, there's like an immediate go-to. And so typically we'll say, okay, well, what's the moral? And what, what should I take from this first? What's in it for me? And we always say it's really important to ask the question, how did the original audience hear this so that I don't make up a new meaning that actually was never intended? So usually people say, well, you can, you know, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. You can if you ignore the audience. But if you really think about how the audience would have heard this and what was going on, it helps us understand why this story is even here. So one of the things I saw when you look at this particular passage about Potiphar's wife and Joseph, uh, you saw this verse come up a lot uh, over the last year when you saw the rash of uh, uh, accusations of sexual assault, both in, for, for various political folks across both spectrums, as well as those in Hollywood. And you saw this verse come up a lot, basically to prove, hey, false allegations happen. So before we go too deeply, let me just make sure you understand. Be very careful from using, be careful to use or to not use verses like these in order to discredit survivors or discredit victims. Because one of the things that we often will do is we'll say, well, you know, I hear that, but we need to wait for all the facts to be out. And we're not saying that facts don't matter, but there's one fact that reigns supreme, and that is false allegations statistically are incredibly rare. We've, if you go back through a few sermons that we've done before, we've talked about this. The numbers show every single verifiable statistic you can look at shows that actual false allegations are, are very, very rare. So don't immediately look at this verse and go, see, got my example of a false allegation. I can now do it. And it's my way to immediately discredit specifically women whenever they have a, a, a cause or a reason to bring a charge. That's not what this verse is about. And so if you do that, you're missing the point. And ultimately, we don't want to do that because we miss God and we miss each other. One of the things, too, is to, to, to think through the fact that uh, when, we, when we look at this passage, we have to immediately, we're always trying to go, okay, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? And we all really try to identify with the good guy. Like, all right, that's, you know, I'm the Joseph in the story. So typically, the way a sermon like this would go is, here's how to avoid temptation, which isn't bad. The, the, the moral of the story is find a way to be Joseph. Ultimately, that's kind of what we do with almost every story in the Bible. Find out who the, identify the good one first. And even if you happen to see yourself as maybe having some traits of the bad person in the story, the goal is how do I just be like this one over here? And that's it. This, this story actually brings up several other issues beyond just how to be the good guy in the story. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll be able to see how many of us, if not all of us, have some real traits more like Potiphar's wife than Joseph in the story. So if you've normally just kind of looked at this and been like, hey, I can look back at times when I've been in Joseph's shoes and I did well, I was the Joseph in that story. You're missing even another point. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through uh, some of that as we, as, as, we, as we dig in. To be clear, there's no question that we're looking at a case uh, well, first of all, let's, let's think about where we are. Because last, what, two weeks ago, we, we, we stopped. It almost seems like Genesis takes a quick turn, right? It starts telling you about Joseph. And if you don't remember, Joseph, here he is. He's the apple of his father's eye. He's the on, at this point, he's the only child between, uh, uh, between his father Jacob and the wife that he actually loved. So he's kind of the love child. He's been treated with a lot of favoritism. And because of that, his siblings really don't like him. We talked about all of that. Remember Fuchsia Joseph? Remember that Fuchsia boy? So we've got him just being kind of like this, the apple of his father's eye, treated uh, to so much better than his siblings. His siblings are doing all the dirty, menial jobs, and he's home studying and learning. And he gets sold into slavery, left for dead. His father's convinced that he's dead. And he ends up going off to, uh, he ends up getting sold to Ishmaelites. And what we find out is what happens after that. Now, we have the scriptures, for some reason, the author takes a, a, a break and almost lets you know what's happened with the rest of the family while Joseph is being sold off. So we don't know everything that's happened at this point. He's in the uh, possession of the Ishmaelites. And then we find out about Judah and Tamar. And we talked about that and what had happened uh, at that part of the, the brokenness of the family. And now we're back. And what we find out is that Joseph has not only been sold to the Ishmaelites, he now, at some point, has been sold to this Egyptian ruler, second only to Pharaoh, Potiphar. 
And so you start to find out with the scriptures, the interesting thing about the way these words are, are laid out is when you look at kind of how his life gets bookended, his life gets bookended in between two doxologies. Think about this. Look at uh, what he says uh, as soon as, if we just read through again. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt, an Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. You realize that his story here in Potiphar's house begins with the Lord was with Joseph. And then at the end of the story, when he gets to prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph. There's something about how we almost need to pick something up here, right? Because typically when you think about the Lord being with you, I typically think that means things going well with me, right? In order for God to be with me, something good should be happening. But how is it possible then? Joseph gets sold into slavery, ends up working uh, for Potiphar, has incredible favor as we see. And the scripture says the Lord was with him. Then all these horrible things happen, and yet the Lord is with him. Your litmus test for whether or not God is with you is not your personal success. Your litmus test for whether or not God is with you is not whether or not things circumstantially are copacetic. That's not, that's not how we judge this. There's something deeper here that we're seeing. Somehow, God's favor is still present, even in the midst. In between the two doxologies, horrific things happen. Horrible things, life-changing, cataclysmic events happen. And yet, he's still supposed to hold on to this idea that the Lord is with him. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I, I don't see it with my eyes how you're with me right now. I, I just don't see it. I don't feel it either. You realize that the scriptures don't always give you a guarantee that you'll feel that God's close all the time. It doesn't even give you a guarantee that you'll always see that he's with you all the time, but he still declares, I am with you. And so he says, the Lord, the Lord was with him. And you've got this, this sad story here because Joseph, you got to remember, Joseph is well-educated. He's incredibly overqualified for the task when he first gets brought in and he works his way up. And when he gets to this point, this is where it gets really interesting. Because here he is, he's earned everything in Potiphar's house. I mean, he's, he's got all of these privileges. He's got all of this responsibility. He's being heavily relied on to, to make some very d uh, difficult and responsible decisions. And then all of a sudden, this major temptation happens. And so we saw exactly how it lays out. You see that there's uh, this, this woman, Potiphar's wife, who uh, is in a very unique situation, right? It's interesting that the Bible would use this story because honestly, very few women in those times would ever have this kind of privilege or power. In other words, very few women would have the ability even to be able, if you, you do realize that, you know, when I was in the military, you would have certain people, if they were married to somebody who had a lot of rank, the spouse would wear the rank and kind of throw their weight around even though they weren't in the military. You know, like you'd have like a colonel's wife and the colonel's wife would kind of walk in and like unofficially be wearing the colonel's rank and start bossing everybody else around even though she's not in. You have to be in a specially privileged position, especially as a woman back then, to have anything like that. You realize that if you were a woman in any other situation back then, bringing an allegation would net you nothing. Much like even today, as we talked about, the stats show roughly about 94% of all uh, assaults go unreported and only a small percentage of them ever get prosecuted. That's always been the case. So imagine back then what it would have meant. It's a privilege to even bring an accusation that anybody would even believe. And the only reason why it's even it would even be believable is because of the man to whom she's married. So she's got this, she is a person here who is one of those rare women in the Bible that actually has incredible societal privilege here. That's a big deal. Because if you just think that this is just about, hey, here's an example of a woman bringing a false allegation, we all miss the big picture here. The bigger picture is the villain here isn't just this woman who's bringing a false allegation. The villain is also this horrific societal structure that's in place that gives heavier weight to people in privileged positions than they do people who don't have such positions. And what's interesting is how God and Jesus upends 
even the broken structures that end up giving unequal weights to people's voices. And so you see this happening throughout this story, because when you look at uh, kind of where he is, I mean, you see all the things that Joseph has done. The king of Egypt's, uh, I mean, he, here he is, he's a, the, it says the Lord was with him and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful. Joseph found favor with his master and he became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. There's an incredible favor that's following this man. Now imagine what Joseph, what's going on here? Joseph is estranged from his family. He's not been seeing his family. His brothers just sold him out, sold him to these Ishmaelites. And now the Ishmaelites sold him again. He's been twice sold. He's working for uh, these folks. He's bringing them all kinds of wealth. He's bringing them all... Just, it'd be interesting just to know how he's feeling and what he's thinking when all these things are happening. It'd be interesting. I'd just be really curious to know, like, if he had friends and what he said to his friends. Did he ever kind of bring up, like, man, I, I know I can't talk about this here. Or people are hearing how he speaks and how intelligent he is and how well-read he is. Does he ever go, yeah, like, my dad taught me that. The dad that I can't really see anymore because I was basically kidnapped and taken away from him. Imagine all that weight that he's holding, and yet the Lord was with him. So again, that also shows having all of our emotional stuff worked out isn't always the litmus test either for whether or not God is with us. We can still keep working through emotional turmoil, a lot of emotional and cognitive dissonance, and God still be with us. But here he is doing this. He's bringing all of these things to this household, to this kingdom ultimately. Egypt, you'll see, is going to end up being blessed because of Joseph. And yet, here he is in this place where he's been kidnapped, he's away from his family, and he's bringing all of this blessedness to this home, and Potiphar trusts him for obvious reasons. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. And he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything, anything except the food that he ate. Then he gives us a pretty important detail. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. It's interesting when sometimes there are details that the scriptures will include that you always wonder, like, why did the author feel the need to include that detail? Why did God feel like it was important for us to know this detail, right? Because there are some times where things happen and you don't really know what they look like. They just happen. But in this case, you have to know that Joseph, he grew up to be a a looker. He grew up to be somebody that was kind of fetching, as the old folks used to say. He ended up being this person who, who ultimately you couldn't miss. And you know what I mean? I, I'm almost like, in my imagination, just imagining like this Middle Eastern, brown skin. He's got that good Middle Eastern tan. And he's walking around. And he's talking in a way that a lot of the other slaves don't talk. He's walking in a way that a lot of the other servants don't walk. He's a lot smarter than the other ones. People are noticing. They're paying attention. And Potiphar's wife is paying attention. Now this is where it gets real. Because Potiphar's wife is in a position, again, that very few women would ever be in, but in our society today, actually it's reversed. Potiphar's wife is in the position that largely a lot of men in power happen to be in. You see, Potiphar's wife is in this position where she can look and go, I am in, I'm in a position of authority where I can pretty much have what I want And all I have to do is say a word and it'll go away if anything comes back to me. I'm in a position where if there's something that I just want to take for myself, I can do that. And ultimately, if people don't like it or if anything comes out, I can just say, I didn't do that. And if I did, I didn't mean that. And if you think I meant that, it doesn't matter because it's not as bad as some other stuff other people did. She knew that she had the the ability and the privilege to basically narrate the situation how she wanted to and then silence if she wanted to. So she, she sees this young, handsome, strapped, virile man and says, I want him. And not only does she say that, the way the scriptures word it is, is really interesting. He says, uh, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. 
Now, this is, this is something that a lot, of, a lot of commentators wonder, and I actually think this is probably the case. For her to feel that brazen and that confident to go up to this man and basically say, let's put it down, how in the world could she feel that comfortable doing that had she not done this a few times before? How is it that typically when you can just come up with, with reckless abandon, that's because those muscle memory, that muscle memory works for a reason. You've done this a few times. It, it's, it's not unreasonable to assume that, that if this were the case, that many of the people knew her reputation. She's, hey, she likes to, she likes to hang out with the, with the young servant boys. Joseph may have even known that. It, it's not unreasonable to assume that Joseph may have known, like, I, all right, I know, I, I hope she doesn't see me. I hope she doesn't notice me. It's so interesting to see a man in this situation because when I've listened to the stories, even of women in our congregation, it's usually reversed. It's usually women who are constantly like, I hope I'm not noticed by this guy right now. I hope I'm not noticed by this person because I know what's going to happen. They're going to end up, I've heard their reputation. I know what it is that they do. I've watched what they've done before. If they say something to me and I rebuff their advances, what might this mean to me and my job? What might this mean to me and my, and my ability to, to forge out a way of life? What will happen? I mean, if Joseph, I mean, honestly, Joseph has to be thinking, okay, if, if this woman comes and says something or tries to come for me, if I say no, what might happen? And he just came from being kidnapped. He knows what it means to be just completely thrown away and left for dead. And this is a leader. If I say no, what, what might she say? What, what lies might she make up about me? So, so there is an incentive here for him to just kind of go with it. There's an incentive for him to be like, you know what? Just for the sake of being able to just ensure that I don't have any other reprisal coming my way, I'll just go along with this because I just don't want to have to deal with what's coming. You see, that's how power dynamics work. Power dynamics work in such a way where if you are in a position of power, the things that you think you want, you don't understand. People beneath you, there's higher stakes for them. This is why if you've worked, when I was in business or when I was in the military, it was often, you knew, you just don't fraternize or you don't date or court, whatever word you want to use. You don't, you don't do that with those that are un, underneath your employee. You don't do that. Anybody that you supervise, you don't simply because it creates this very difficult dynamic issue. Because if something happens where you're like, hey, I want to date this person, or I want to go out with this person, or I want to do whatever, and I make my, my, my offer, and then you decide, no, I, you don't want to do that, and then your career goes a different kind of way. Or you, or you see me then go and date someone else, and then their career goes better. The assumption can always be, said, oh man, they, that's because that person did that. That person was able to say yes, and so their career went better. And sometimes those stories go far worse. Power dynamics matter. When you read the scriptures, if you don't start asking where is power in the story, you really won't see what God is undoing in the story. You won't see what God is actually doing to like turn the tables in the ways in which power dynamics normally work. Normally the people with the power dynamics, they get to set the rules. They get to tell the story. They get to do the punishing. And yet that's not that's ultimately what we don't see in the big story, but in this part of the story, you see it. So, so we know that she makes this overture. She says, after some time, she looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. He said, look, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He... He, he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil? How could I sin against God? This definitely says a lot about Joseph. Because Joseph is that, honestly, here he is taking this major gamble by saying, I'm going to turn your, I'm going to turn your advances down. Here you are, this incredibly powerful woman in this position that, that you get to pretty much say whatever you want. I know that I don't really have any recourse, but I can't do this. Why? Now, this is where there is a place here to look at Joseph and see this example of what real integrity looks like. Right? I teach my kids, and when I was in the service, it was always a thing. What is integrity? Doing the right thing when no one's looking. 
right? Here he is, he's like, it doesn't matter whether or not people know this or not, I can't do this. And here's what he brings up, he brings up two people, two uh, beings that end up getting affected by this sin. He brings up the fact that he says, I can't do this to my boss or my master. I can't do this to him. Look at all the, all the grace that I've received from him because of the work that I do. I don't want to offend or violate his trust. But he also adds, second more importantly, I don't want to commit this sin against God. I tell people, even when I'm doing premarital counseling, be very careful about when people, if you're dating and the person only does things because they just don't want to disappoint you, be very careful because what if they get to a point where they don't care if you're disappointed? Is there, is there something or some level or some force or some being or something that supersedes you that they adhere to? Is there something outside of themselves that they actually look at as an authority? Do they actually have this deep reverence for God? What I'm basically saying is, do they love God more than they love you? Because I promise you they'll know how to love you. The same thing goes with friends, with family. So he's going, I, not only do I not want to violate the trust of my master, I don't want to fail imaging the very God that I worship. I don't want to actually paint a, a false picture of who God is based on the way that I comport myself. We realize this, right? We say this over and over again. The scriptures use phrases like uh, being a, 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 a literal, legible letter. Right? The old King James would say, be a living epistle. Right? This idea that we are meant to be living letters. People should be able to look and read and go, oh, that's how the, kingdom, how the values within the kingdom works. This person had an opportunity to do X, Y, and Z when no one would know about it, and they still didn't. Why? Not so that they could pat themselves on the back or get up and brag about it later. Hey, y'all, let me tell you about the time I could have done something, but I didn't. I'm so great. It's, it's not because of that. It's like I desperately want to make sure that I'm imaging God well. That's integrity. When, you, when we're building friendships, relationships, marriages, whatever, these are key things. This is what integrity looks like. It's not enough. It, doesn't, it shouldn't make us feel good if the person's like, I didn't do this ultimately because I just didn't want to let you down. First of all, that puts way too much pressure on you because you can't be God for anybody. And the moment they put you in that position, there's pride that can begin to ensue for you. You end up being kind of a type of savior for them, which in turn, you become an, a type of idol for them. But the moment you're like, man, you know, they, they can ultimately kind of communicate, I didn't want to do this, I knew it would hurt you, and I knew it would hurt God. I knew it would break God's heart. See, this is where Joseph comes down. It takes a lot to show this kind of integrity here, because he stands to lose so much by saying no. It's probably reasonable to assume that there have probably been other servants where they said yes, and probably are looking at him like, man, you stupid, I, I would have just gone along and done it. That's not what he does. He shows this integrity, and the Lord somehow is with him. So he says no, and he explains why. He gives his reason. He gives a very good, godly reason full of integrity. And what does she respond with? Well, although it says, the scripture says, although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. So she was persistent. She just kept coming after him over and over. And this phrase, kind of day by day, it's kind of this indeterminate uh, amount of time. It could be weeks, it could be months. We don't know, but it's, I think there are people in this room who know what that life is, where there's somebody that's just constantly like, hey, how about now? Hey, how about that? How about now? Hey, I'm wearing that thing you like. Hey, I got some new cologne. Hey, I got this, I got that. They're constantly coming, constantly coming. This is the situation that he's in. So here he's in this situation where he's like, man, I, this person keeps coming. Today's world, we would call that harassment. He's constantly being harassed over and over and over again. Now, here's where we stop and go, what are we likely to do when people are going through those situations now? I'm gonna tell you what we're likely to do. When somebody's in this kind of a situation, 
And they start recounting this story to you and say, this person, man or woman, just continued to harass me. Specifically, let's say my boss, somebody in an upper level position, some type of a position that gives them much more privilege than I have. So I can't just outright say what I really want to say because ultimately that could lead into me being dismissed and other things. So I've got this person just constantly coming after me. I've got to manage everything in the room because they're powerful. I'm not. And they keep coming, they keep coming, they keep coming. And here's what happened. And then it ended up this way. Here's how typically what we do, especially the women. Well, why didn't you just say something? Can you, I mean, Joseph doesn't say anything for a while. As a matter of fact, he, we, he doesn't say anything at all. It's actually because of what happens later. Why didn't Joseph just say anything? See, this is, this is where we are now. The moment people don't say, we think that that is proof then that they either, A, easily, we could, I think in our culture today, if somebody like Joseph came out and said this, they'd be like, well, clearly you didn't say anything, so you must have been okay with it. Because a logical person would just say that. You know who gets to say that? The people who have the privilege to say that. The people who get to say, well, all you had to do was this. Well, yeah, because that's all you would have to do is this. Because you're in a position where you don't have to fear the kind of reprisal that I would had I said it. So here, Joseph is in this situation where he's being harassed. He's dealing with all of these things. All, the, everything would go away if he would just give in. Everything would just go away. And yet, somehow, he's enduring and dealing, and she's constantly coming, constantly coming. Probably a, little, a fear that's there, because he's like, man, if I keep saying, no, where is this going to go? Like, that first no wasn't enough. Yet another thing I've heard from several of our women here, for sure. I know it can also happen to men, but it happens very disproportionately to women. So we have to not meet, not, not uh, uh, yeah, let's not like do the kind of all lives matter thing to this issue. It's a much more disproportionate outcome for women. And so when you think about the fact that there are people who are like, man, I, I don't know what's next because I've said no so many times. And every time I've said no, I'm noticing it's starting to ramp up. It's starting to ramp up. It's starting to ramp up. And there are some people who have just been like, you know, I just had to just give it. I just said okay or said yes to go out just because I didn't want to have to. And people are like, that's stupid. You can just say no. You see, we don't understand power dynamics. So we can say ignorant things like that. And what we end up doing is we end up re-traumatizing people who have actually been through horrendous forms of abuse. And so Joseph is in this situation where he's looking and he's getting all of this back and he's getting, he's having to figure out what to do, what to do, what to do. And he's saying no, and he's saying no, and he's saying no. We don't know everything that's happening, the inner monologue he's thinking and how he's processing. I'm sure at times it's like, you know, how bad would it be if I just did this right now and just kept going? At least I wouldn't have this pressure there. What happens if she ends up saying something else? What happens if she starts talking to other people? I don't want all that attention. I just, maybe he's going, man, at some point, I just want to get back home. I just want to be able to see my family again. I want to be able to see my dad, my brothers, even though they kind of did some bad stuff to me. Maybe, you know, we can work it out. Who knows? But what we know for sure is he's still holding fast. He's still going, I still know who God is, and I can't violate that. Even if it would be in my best interest to do so, I can't do this. And she spoke to him day after day. He refused to go to bed with her. Now, one day, he went into the house to do his work. And none of the household servants were there. So she grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. I think that there's so much, really, that we can tease out here. And we were talking earlier. It's like, man, we could make this sermon super, super long. And I know I'm prone to do that, but we're not going to do that. One of the things that, that is so interesting in this part of the story, though, is there's so much about us that we can see in this, if we're just honest, right? You make an attempt to do something, and here's what happens. When a certain sinful practice in you gets exposed, you feel attacked. Exposure feels like attack to the person who's guilty. Exposure feels that way. Like, there are times where there's something about you that starts to be put on display, and, and you don't like... It's, it's almost like they'll say, like, there are some things... People, they'll say this about racism. They'll say, like, man, the worst thing than being racist is being called one. I don't like, I, I can't believe you would call me that, as opposed to, 
I accept there's probably some extra work I need to do to ensure that that is actually not a thing on an individual or systemic level. I'm not going to sit and keep trusting on all the wonderful things I can recount to you about the things that I did. I'm actually going to say there's some deep work. Same thing with misogyny. Same thing with any form of real ways that we don't acknowledge image bearers well. When somebody starts to point out empirical evidence that there's some sidestepping or line stepping that's occurred, what is your first response? Because a lot of times our response is the response of Potiphar's wife. No, 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 you're not going to make me the enemy. You're not going to make me the bad guy. I will now make you the bad guy. And here's how I'll make you the bad guy. She employs not only false allegations, but she stokes up their own kind of racial antipathy. (laughs) She doesn't just say this guy or this servant. She says this Hebrew. Because ultimately, we will reach for anything in order to be able to make our case even if it's something that doesn't stick. Why? Because I'm so concerned about defending how I choose to see myself. I don't want to have to see myself this way. This is why, you know, you'll see this even if, you, if you're in a situation where you try to show integrity on some level, and maybe you're with friends who just make a different decision. You're not even saying anything to them. You may not even be saying, hey, don't do that because of whatever. You're not doing that. You're just like, hey, that's, you guys are going to do that? I'm good and be here. There's always one person that's like, oh, what? You think you're better than us now? Oh, I say, oh, you're just too good. That you can't do this. What are you saying? You think I'm bad? Let me tell you, I'm not bad for doing this. Okay, this is just something. I, it's like I didn't say anything. I didn't ask you why you were doing it. I didn't check your motives. Anything. I'm just saying I'm not going. But see, this is what happens. Exposure feels like attack. Exposure feels like attack. So here he is. He's been saying no, 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 no. Things got to a fever pitch. She was probably just hot and bothered and just wanted him right then and there. No kids in there, right? Yeah, wanted him right then and there. And the moment he just says, no, see, this is the other thing. When you are worked up to a fever pitch, there's something about the sense of entitlement. When you want something bad enough and you have the power and privilege that says, I've always gotten what I want, then there's a sense of entitlement that's there. So now it's not just you said no. It's like, who do you think you are to say no to me? This is is the dynamic that many people deal with in this room. You say, how do you know the kind of people that have wanted to say yes to me? Do you know? I can almost imagine her looking at them going, do you know how many slaves would, would give a limb to be with me? Do you realize the kind of privileges you would have on the side? And yet you have the nerve to say no? Who do you think you are? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to bring up this allegation. I'm going to make people really look down on you and remind you, by the way, you're still a Hebrew. That's just a slave to us. The fact that she does this is, this is a bigger picture than just women making false allegations. This is people in powerful, privileged positions using said power and privilege in order to exploit and in some ways ostracize those who don't have power and privilege. That's what this is. If you miss this and if you just take it individual, you miss it completely. If you're just like, how do I learn to say no? How do I learn to say no better? <laughs> then you miss it. Because here's the thing. All of us are going to be, we can, and have been, or maybe even are, either Potiphar's wife or Joseph at different times. And so the question is going to be, what do I do then? Here's, so here's the thing. How do I know if I'm a type of Potiphar's wife? How do I know that? I may not be doing specifically what she does in this story. So, so what else, what does that look like for me? There's a lot of ways. One of the main ways, even in church, right? In church, it can be, it could be, I know that I'm like a very high impact giver. And because I give a lot, I think that my giving entitles me to a louder vote. And so because I believe that gives me a louder vote, then I feel very entitled to X, Y, and Z. And if I don't get told things, or if I don't know things, or if things surprise me, then I'm extremely, I'm, I'm extremely upset and I will find a way to make you feel it. Because I realize that because I'm a major giver, I'm not talking about anybody in the church, promise. <laughs> but it can be that, right? If, if I, because I'm a, I'm a major giver, I have a degree of power and privilege here. Because I realize that if I just leave, a lot of things shut down. And so people tend to do that. 
People will just vote with their attendance or vote with their giving, right, in a church situation. And sometimes what ends up happening is pastors get put in very precarious positions because they're like, okay, what things can I talk about? What things should I not talk about? Because if I talk about this, these folks will leave. But then if I talk about this, those folks will leave. This is why it's very difficult even when you're like, man, you know, we, we've said this before. When you're talking about being a Christian, even in this political climate, you need to be as liberal as Jesus is and as conservative as Jesus is. But the problem is everybody thinks they're that. Everybody thinks that they're the equal balance of, I mean, you know, I'm liberal over here and I'm conservative over here and that's good and I'm okay and I sound like Kermit the Frog. That's, that's typically what we'll do, right? We kind of think that this is the best way to be. I'm balanced and I'm good and you're not talking about me. Until you hear something being preached and all you can think about is all the other people that need to hear this. Oh man, I just wish that person was here to hear that. You, re- you would have told them about themselves. There, you would have told them. And I'm like, I was really trying to tell you, but you weren't really listening on that one. So, 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 so now what ends up happening is you end up either being, a, a, from a pastoral position, I see the text goes in this direction, and guess what? People who lean on the left on this issue are probably going to get really upset. They're going to get upset because the Bible still says what it says. God's heart is still where it is, so I've got to talk about this. And and people may not appreciate it or might get upset or might feel like everything's being politicized or the other side. If you happen to lean right on issues and you've grown up thinking that because I'm on, specifically in our culture now, being on the right usually means the more Christian side. And so because I'm, I lean right, I'm more on the Christian side now. So the moment somebody preaches about something that leans left, oh, now we're getting political. You realize it's never political when it's your side. When it's your side, it's just gospel. When it's the other side, it's political. Which is why we'll say things like, I'll be glad when they just get back to preaching the gospel. In other words, I'll be glad when they keep giving me my political idol back. Because now I feel like I'm hearing what I need to hear. You see, this is what happens. So if that's you... You can see that this is what the spirit of Potiphar's wife looks like. How do I use my power and my privilege in order to bring about what it is that I want? And on top of that, here's what ends up being worse in her case. Not only does she do what she does, but she can create this accusation and then just completely tell the whole story and speak for you. There's no other voice. His voice doesn't even need to be heard. His voice, you don't even have to hear kind of what they're saying because ultimately the assumption is, well, of course she wouldn't lie. Why would she lie? Why would she make this up? She has a lot of authority behind her. This, this is no different from our climate now. So what, is it, what does it look like? Maybe you're in a position of authority at work, in the workplace. Or maybe just society affords you a degree of privilege just based on your demographic status in some form or fashion. And so you have the ability then to either choose to not hear people or to choose to silence people. Because that's the other thing that you see here. She doesn't just tell the story incorrectly, but she's able to effectively silence him. So where are we? Because more often than not, if you go back through the annals of your life, there probably are times where, man, I, I probably have been more like Potiphar's wife on this one. I probably have sought to either. And usually it's because there's something that I want to protect. It's not like you wake up in the morning and go, I just can't wait to exploit someone. No, wake up and I just, who can I take advantage of today? No, typically it's there's some degree of power that I want or a degree of power that I want to protect. And if I want to protect that power, then this is how I can do it. So that's, that's the question. The question is, what is it that I want to protect so much that I'm willing to either silence people's voices, I'm willing to e- either not tell the story correctly, you know that usually when, when people are having problems or whether it's marital issues or disagreement, if you ever let both sides tell the story, it often is pretty different. Usually it's like one person will tell like what happened, but they won't talk about any of the things that they did They'll just keep talking about just how bad the other person is. Oftentimes it's like, you know, yeah, you know, they they just been really saying really mean things to me and and not really hearing me well and not really seeing me well and and they just don't really want to talk to me and it's just, it's so hard to be in a relationship like that. Then the other person's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's been really hard because, you know, 
they, they slept with three different people and, 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 and we've been married for all these years and, oh, you, you, you left that detail out? I mean, we're all supposed to forgive, right? Wait, you gotta be able to talk about both sides of the story here. But when you are the only ones telling the story, when you have the power and privilege to tell the story, you have the power to silence others. So what you see happening here is not just this false allegation, hey everybody, put this back in your back pocket so whenever an allegation comes out, go, well, you know women do be lying. That's not what this is about. And ultimately what you see start to happen after Joseph gets accused and she riles up all of this additional anger, this racial anger, racial antipathy, uh, all of this class uh, issue that's there too. She's able to bring just the weight of all those things against him. And there's really no way for him to defend himself. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me. He was furious. And he had him thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. And then what? But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. There, there is something to be said about the ways in which you see Joseph's posture, his heart posture in all of this. Because I can look at this story right now and go, I'm not Joseph. Because if that had happened to me, there's no way in the world that I would just be, I remember, uh, I remember there was a, there was a uh, I don't know, like a DreamWorks movie about the Joseph story. Has anybody ever seen that? It's like a, it's the same people who did Prince of Egypt. And so yeah, I see some hands going up. It, it's, it's like a, it's way cheesier than Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt was like big Steven Spielberg. And this one was kind of, yeah, not, not the same. And, and, but in the story, it's interesting how they kind of tell it, right? Because Joseph is like, no, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And he's scrubbing the, you know, the tiles and all this stuff happens. And they, they accuse him and he gets thrown into jail. And when he's in the jail, he's just kind of singing like, well, Lord, you know better than I. That's the name of the song that's being sung. You know better than I. And he's scrubbing and he's planting a little plant in the middle of the jail cell. And he's just singing out to God and his beard's getting long and haggard. But you know better than I. There's no way that would be me. I'm just, I'm confessing to y'all now, like pray for my heart because I just, I'm not there yet. He's still working on me. I can tell you this much. It takes, it takes something to be able to go, the Lord is still with me. I'm, I'm, I'm in prison suffering for something I did not do. So if I'm a person, like we said at the beginning, if I'm a person that judges whether or not God is with me. If I judge that based on my immediate circumstances, I'm going to always feel like, man, I must be alone. Many times, myself included, there are times when I have felt completely alone because circumstantially, it looks like I'm alone. Some of the things that are happening, it just looks like I'm alone. The one thing I don't ever want to ask is, because I don't want to, I know that I should, and so I do it, I don't always want to do it, is, Okay, Lord, what are you teaching me? How are you remaking me in this? Because I only like to be remade in really good situations. I would love for a windfall of wealth to remake me. I would love for all of a sudden just somebody to say, hey, we've got like a $15 million building that just fell in our lap for you. Man, Lord, make me over, Father. Do what you have to do in my life. I, I would love to be able to do that. And I think, I, I presume that all of you would too. So what do we do then? How do I stop and go, okay, things are not well right now. This over here, and I don't see any real hope for real change right now. God, are you still here? What do I need to hold on to? And see, this is where there are certain truths about God that we need to cling to. If you're only trusting your eyes, you will let go. If you're only trusting what it is you're feeling in the moment, you will let go. There's got to be certain things that I have to hold on to. When God makes the promise to say, I will never leave you or forsake you, then when I'm in a situation where I might feel forsaken, I have to go, okay, God, but you are with me. And so maybe my prayer is, Lord, help me to be reminded that you're with me. That's my prayer a lot. Lord, I'm not seeing it right now. I don't feel it right now. But I need to be reminded that you're there. And it's okay. Let me tell you, it's not, a, it's not a, you're not looking like this super faith superhero by just lying about, I just know God is with me all the time. You can be honest and just be like, sometimes I, sometimes I wonder. We see that, what is it, Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
If that's not a prayer for each and every one of us, we're just not being honest. So here Joseph is, and like, as far as he can tell, everybody thinks that I, can, that I try to rape and assault the Potiphar's wife. There's no way that I'm not gonna, that I'm not gonna be uh, killed. There's no way that, like, I know that death is, is coming. If something doesn't change, I'm gonna die. And yet the Lord was with him. And it reminds us in many ways of, of and in, in, in even the descendant of Joseph, you see in many ways the same humble posture in Jesus. You see the ways in which, if you, if you think about Joseph being accused of this act against this woman, and then you think about the, the, the ways in which Jesus gets punished for something he was not guilty of. But in many ways, Joseph is getting ready to potentially die for something they claimed he did. Jesus goes on to die for, for all the things that we did. You think about the ways in which Jesus actually models this kind of humility. That's the reason why we quote that passage in 2 Corinthians where it says, God made him. I'll say it slowly. We say it fast a lot. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Just let that sit. It doesn't even seem fair. It's like, man, you look at Joseph, it's not fair. And he's just doing it. He's basically suffering for himself. And then you see his descendant, Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to say, listen, all the ways that your heart is rooted like Potiphar's wife, I'm coming in the same spirit, but even in the spirit of God, I'm coming. In some ways, the way you saw Joseph come and suffer in ways for something he didn't do, I'm coming as God suffering for all of the things you did that I'm not guilty of. But I'm doing this. I'm dying for Potiphar's wife so that she can get the favor of Joseph. This is what Jesus does. Jesus does it in such a way where he says, I, if I, it doesn't even matter. I am God in the flesh. I am, I've lived perfect. I've lived a life that it's impossible for you to live. So if you're walking around in the shame of going, I can, I can realize all the ways that I have the heart of Potiphar's wife. I can look at all the examples where I've had the heart of Potiphar's wife. What hope is there for me? This is where Jesus comes in. Jesus says, this is why I came. I didn't just come to be your friend. I didn't just come for you to just have somebody to cry on when you're sad. I came to take away your sin. Not only did I come to take away your sin, but I come now so that you have no condemnation when the sin has been taken away. So you don't have to keep walking in the shame of the sin. You don't have to keep walking with the weight of that sin. You actually get the very favor of God. So regardless of how you feel about where you are or where you were or the fears that you have about where you're going, Jesus comes to remind you, God is with you. So where are we? As a church, as individuals, as families, can we honestly say, you know, I, do I believe that God is with me right now? And what does it look like for me when I don't feel like he's with me right now? What do I run to when I feel like he's not with me? Where do I go? What, are, what vices do I run to in order to just make myself feel like I'm comforted on some level? This is, this is where God leaves us. He, he puts us in this situation. When you look at Joseph's life and you see all the ways in which he is faithfully following God, faithfully trying to image him well and still finds himself in this really hard place. And see, this is why we can't compare ourselves to Joseph because very few of us can look at our lives and go, I've just been faithful the whole time. I'm, I'm waiting. Very few of us can say that. We can't just say, like, I, we'll do that. This is, I, used to, I remember as a kid first trying to really start studying Scripture really seriously, and I remember studying in Job, and I remember, like, family members, whenever bad things were happening, I'm like, man, I, just, I feel like I'm Job right now. And I'm like, the Bible says Job was blameless, and I saw what you did yesterday, so you can't just jump out here saying I'm Job. Most of us, if not all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, see, I can't even put myself there. I see certain sins in my own life. I see certain decisions that may have gotten me here. I see those things. And yet there's still a place where God says, and I'm with you. 
And yet there's a place where God says, regardless of what it is that you have or that you have in your past or what it is that's in front of you, I am with you. And I gladly take that upon me and just give you my righteousness back. This great exchange. So here's the thing. There's hope even for Potiphar's wife. We don't get to just look at the stories and go, they're the bad guy, they're the good guy. Jesus died for both. Jesus brings redemption for both. And honestly, when you see yourself as Potiphar's wife, that's when you have more hope. Because all you have, if you only want to be the Joseph in the story is, I just hope I can be perfect. I hope I can find a way to just keep this list going. I hope that there's a way. So when the time comes, when I don't keep it, I can't let anybody see that. I better, I can't let anybody know that those things are really there. I need to find a way to just, and you know what we do when we do that? We start nursing our sins quietly, privately. The reasons why people are in that is not just because they just can't wait to have a bunch of secret sin issues. It's because I honestly think that the only way I'm going to be accepted is by being perfect like this story I see here. That's it. That's the only way that I'm going to get the grace of God is by finding a way to be perfect as opposed to understanding he brings the grace of God to me that gives me the ability to repent. I'll close with this story. A lot of people uh, and, and a lot of theologians have brought, uh, brought this point up. When this story is ever told, people will always say, I think people love to be able to find old, ancient texts that in many ways are very similar to stories that we see in the Bible. And then by doing so, you can go, see, that just proves that the Bible is just based off of a bunch of other man-made stuff, which means it's just a copycat, right? Well, this story it happens to fall in that category because this story is a story that some elements of it are very similar to a story called The Tale of Two Brothers. This was an old Egyptian tale from about 12 BC, and it predates this story. Now, in the story, there's only a couple of details that are similar, but they're similar enough to go, oh, wow, that does kind of remind me of it. In this story, you've got two brothers, they're farmers, and the two farmers uh, are working and working, farming, farming, and one farmer's wife ends up uh, being uh, or claiming that she was assaulted by the other brother. She had wanted the brother, ended up not, he ended up saying no. She felt so embarrassed and she was exposed, made him the bad guy, that was that. And so he ends up giving this, uh, he, he ends up, the story gets crazy because this is like old Egyptian myths, right? So this is not like, like a nice Disney story. It gets real, real crazy. Like the brother is like, I, I'm going to prove to you that I didn't do it. And the way I'm going to prove to you is I'm going to mutilate myself. And he cuts off body parts and he takes his heart out and he says, hey, you're going to take my heart and you're going to put it at the top of a tree. And when you cut the tree down, if the heart is still there, then I'm innocent. It's all these crazy things that's happening, right? What are we seeing here? This is where easily you can be like, well, okay, this is just a copycat, right? No, it's not. First of all, there's no question there are recurring themes and stories that mankind has always had to wrestle with. So it's not a shock that God would indeed take the same theme in order to be able to paint a bigger picture. But he gives a bigger picture than just what you see in the Egyptian story. Because in most of your Greek and Egyptian stories, the moral of the story usually is find a way to earn your, your favor from the gods. Do something to earn your favor from the gods. So this guy had to mutilate himself in order to earn favor from the gods. I love studying Greek mythology. The same thing. You end up having, if you want to get favor, you don't know for sure if you're going to get it, but you better do some things to get their attention. Otherwise, you ain't getting nothing. He is, in this story, this, this man has to go and do all of these things just to try to earn favor, just to be able to be rendered innocent. And the difference with God's kingdom and the world's kingdom is, he says, I accept you, I love you, I forgive you, you do nothing. You don't save yourself. The only thing you do is believe, A, what I've declared about you. So if I say, listen, there are things about you that are broken, Yes, there are things about me that are broken. There are things about you that don't look like who I made in the beginning. Yep, there are things about me that don't look like who you made in the beginning. And there, there's the length that I've gone to rescue you. The length that I've gone to remake you. I'm doing the remaking. You do the faith and repenting. That's it. You don't have to mutilate. You don't have to do all these things. You don't have to create all of these lists. You don't have to keep beating yourself with the shame of sin. You don't have to do any of that. You don't even have to feel like you are your sin. You know why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for, for your word. I thank you for the freedom that you offer us when we are able to let go of fixing ourselves, when we are able to let go of all the ways in which we protect our power, protect our privilege, and what that inclines us to do, all the ways that we are inclined to, to maybe even change the truth in order to make ourselves look better, ways in which we look at others and find ways to, to poke holes so that we can feel better about ourselves. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart that can acknowledge that about ourselves. I pray that we would see ourselves more even in aspects of Potiphar's wife than we would even Joseph. And I pray that only, we know that only humility will bring that about. So God, I pray that you would bring real humility upon us. That we would be so overwhelmed by your grace, by your love, by the joy that you offer us and be so shocked, God, this scandalous grace that you give. God, it just feels so unfair that you would give people that are unworthy of this kind of grace, that you would do it lovingly, that you would do it like a spendthrift, that you would do it in such a prodigal fashion. And yet, God, all we can say is thank you. We can be broken and we can be encouraged that you died for us all. God, I pray that you would also give us what it looks like to have these fruits of repentance, what it means to indeed acknowledge the ways in which we have been guilty of even exploiting or even overlooking those that have been hurt, those that have been taken advantage of. And I pray that you would really change our heart on this. I pray that you would give us real eyes with new vision to see these things the way you see them. God, I know that there are many of us here who feel maybe even some coldness in our own heart about issues like this. God, I pray that in this very moment, you would start doing the melting there. God, I pray that you would give us a deep, overwhelming sense of your pardon for our sin so that we never have to walk in the shame. We can walk in the joy that you give us because of you, not ourselves. We pray for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this table, one of the reasons why we do this, one of the primary reasons why we do this is to be reminded of all the ways that Jesus indeed does give us this grace. All the ways that Jesus reminds us that actually it is not you that's holding yourself up. It is not you that's rescuing you. It's him. He started the rescue. He inaugurated the rescue. And it will ultimately be perfectly restored. And so we, we hold on to this. So when you think about the, way, the things that we just talked about, when you think about the sin that's there, you look at the difference between Potiphar's wife and, and Joseph, you've got to understand when we come and partake of this meal, we come not because we're proud of the ways that we've been Joseph. Ultimately, we come because we're reminded of all the ways that we're more like Potiphar's wife and we come with a repentant heart when we come. We say, you know, I, I see the brokenness. If nothing else, I see the brokenness that required Jesus come and die. If it's difficult, if you're not able to really, if you're like, you know, I, this, this is good and this is, this is cool and this is fine and Jesus is cool and all, but I'm just not sure that this is exactly what's true for me. Aspects of it are. But I, I feel like that there are things that, that I feel pretty rescued in. And, and there are things that I've done that have worked out for me. And so I just don't know that this is something that I really need to submit to. It's not something that I really feel like I need to give into. Let this time pass. Here's why. Not because this is about who's in the club or who's not. This is because there's a reason why Paul says, examine and make sure that we take this uh, and, and ensure that we don't take it in an unworthy fashion. The reason why is not so like, oh, I'm just so afraid of the lightning to come down or anything like that. It's because Jesus wants to meet you exactly where you are, honestly, authentically. He does not want you to have to come, put on a robe that doesn't fit, fake a whole narrative, put on a mask just so that you can feel like you belong. You don't have to tell a false narrative. You don't have to be Potiphar's wife. You can come and be who you are. Jesus says, I'm going to meet you where you are but I'm going to love you too much to leave you that way. And if this is where, where your truth, this is where your joy, if this is where your hope is, then this indeed is where your table is. As our volunteers come, 
We want to remind you that here at Icon, we do communion by the process of intinction. So what that means is you'll come down the middle aisle, starting in the back. You'll take a a piece of gluten-free bread and you'll dip it in the wine or the juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he picked up the bread and and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you take and eat of it. It's really interesting when you think about who's sitting at the table during this time. You've got Judas, who's getting ready to betray him a little bit later. Jesus is sitting at the table with people who are going to lie about him, people that are going to betray him, and yet he looks at them the way he looks at us and says, even in the midst of your future sin, I give this for you. And he said, this cup is my blood the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. What the Apostle Paul tells us is that every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And ultimately, that is why when, when, you know, depending on your church background, these things are just all religious and ceremonial. But this is something much more than that. This is not something that you just do because you're in church. This is something we do because ultimately we are proclaiming where our greatest hope is. We're proclaiming my greatest hope. My greatest hope for my heart being completely moved from the heart of Potiphar's wife to this symbolic heart of Joseph to ultimately having the heart of Jesus. My only hope is the fact that not only did he live perfectly, die for me, but his tomb is still empty and he's returning to finish what he started. If that's your hope, if that's your joy, if this is what you trust in, then come, be reminded, taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.